From the Hutterberg Catechism, we read together, Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for, so, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally, as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, is life worth living? Last week we learned that by nature we are wretched sinners, that of ourselves we are totally corrupt. God's evaluation of mankind is that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And that applies not just to unbelievers, it also applies to the children of God. Of ourselves, we are capable of the grossest sins. Our corruption is absolute. It involves man's heart, his mind, and his will. If mankind has fallen, if by nature we do not live righteous, holy, and loving lives, then how worthwhile is life? When we're faced with sin and with all its ugly consequences, is life really worth living? It's a pressing question today. In our free and affluent society, suicide continues to be a major problem. Close to 4,000 people in Canada take their own lives each year. In 2020, Over 13,000 people received medical aid in dying. That number is increasing by about a third each year. These stats show the hopelessness and the despair of many in our society. For many people, life is not worth living. Life's pressures, its disappointments, its difficulties are too much. To many tortured souls, death seems to be a better alternative than life. People crave an escape from the misery that they experience in their lives. They think death is preferable to life. In our sermon, we'll see two things. The first is that for those who do not know God and serve Him, death is not an escape. 
The Lord God is a just God. God's wrath against sin is very great. He is terribly angry about the sins we were born with, as well as the sins we each personally commit. As a just God, he punishes man's sins, now and eternally. Yet this does not mean that we're left in despair and hopelessness. For our God is also merciful. We serve a God of comfort, a God who provides hope to all those who turn to him. God will not pour out his wrath on those who seek their life outside of themselves in Jesus Christ. Instead, he grants them his grace. He provides meaning for our lives. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God shows his justice by punishing man's sins with death. We'll see that God's justice in punishing the sins of some with their own death. And God's mercy in forgiving the sins of others through Christ's death. Lord's Day 4 is all about God's justice. What's it mean that God is a just God? He is someone who is fair in dealings, in his dealings with others. God keeps his commitments. He does what he said he would do. Is God just? Is he fair in his dealings with man? Sometimes on the surface, it doesn't seem like that. Our catechism addresses this in question nine. It asks, does not God do man an injustice by requiring his law what man cannot do? Is it right for God to subject man to misery, to punish people for things they cannot help? How can God require people to keep the law knowing we cannot do that? Is it right to demand something of a person that is unable to perform? Can you ask someone paralyzed to run a marathon? May you demand the impossible and then blame and even condemn anyone who fails to meet such demands? Actually, the problem is even worse than such questions indicate. Can you talk to the dead and require them to do things only possible if they were alive? Can you ask for moral obedience and the highest spiritual devotion from people hopelessly lost in corruptions and addictions to all that's evil? In and of ourselves, we're miserable sinners. We cannot do any good. We're inclined to all evil. We are dead in our sins. We're slaves to sin. The image of God with which man was created was destroyed in the fall into sin. By nature, we are totally corrupt. In such a situation, is it right for God to demand perfection from us? Is it fair for him to demand that we live completely holy lives to the praise and glory of his name? 
Wouldn't it be more just of God to adapt himself to our sinful state and lower the demands of his law? Our catechism gives a blunt answer to these questions. The answer is no. God's not unjust. He's not unfair. The problem doesn't lie with him. It lies with us. God has not changed. Man has. You see, beloved, God created us as his image bearer. God made us good and righteous and holy. When man was created, he was able to fulfill the task and the function God assigned to him. The fault for our inability to keep the law does not lie with God, but with ourselves. Our catechism sums up the point in just a few lines. It says that man, at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. In paradise, man was able to keep God's law, to live up to God's demands. God gave man freedom. He gave man control over all the animals and the plants. Man was given charge over what happened on earth. He was free to eat of the fruits of the fruit of the trees and the plants in the Garden of Eden. God only placed one restriction on man. He allowed man to eat of all the trees of the garden except for one. Of it, God said, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. No one forced man to eat of that tree. Man still had a free will at that point in time. He didn't have to listen to the temptations of the devil. He had the ability to withstand Satan's attacks. But man didn't want to. He gave ear to the voice of the devil. He took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and ate. Man willfully disobeyed God, and thereby he plunged himself and all his descendants into misery. Man brought sin and death into this world. Those are the consequences we also face in our lives. It's what makes life so unbearable for many in society today. Some people think that because of the change in man's circumstances, God should also change his approach to man. They think that God should be adaptable. What's generally suggested is that God should lower his standards. He shouldn't expect of sinful people what only perfect people can do. But beloved, one of the things about God is that God does not change. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Just imagine that God was not faithful to his word. Would he then be trustworthy? Could we depend on him if he just changed his mind whenever it suited him? God deals with man fairly. He continues to deal with man as man. God doesn't say, I see in man all kinds of things that are substandard, things that look beastly, and so therefore I'm going to reduce my demands. 
Even though people can behave like irrational animals, God continues to deal with man as if he was still God's image bearer on this earth. Whether or not people are aware of it, God upholds his original demands. God expects man both to love him and his neighbor perfectly. And if we don't, God will punish our sins for the Lord our God is a just God. God said that if man ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. By eating of this tree, a man brought death on himself. He came under God's curse. God is terribly displeased with our sins, both with our original sin as well as with our actual sins. And the result is is that God will punish them with a just judgment now and eternally. As it says in Galatians 3, verse 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Here, beloved, we see why it is that so many people find life hardly worth living. The reason is, is that mankind has come under God's curse because of his sins, and now he has to suffer punishment for them. How does God punish man's sins? It's a difficult question to answer. In general, we can say that God's curse has fallen on man and also on creation. God told the woman that she would bear children in pain. He told Adam that the ground was cursed because of him. It would bring forth thorns and thistles. He said it was by the sweat of his brow that man would eat food until he died. We see that the fall into sin resulted in much pain and suffering. Floods and droughts, earthquakes and hurricanes, pain and sorrow, sickness and death. They're all consequences of man's fall into sin. Yet God's punishment of man's sin is more specific than just that. In Psalm 5, David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. In Psalm 7, David confesses, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. The prophet Nahum says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yes, beloved, God is terribly angry with man's sins. He punishes them now and eternally. In Romans 1 verse 18, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And three times in Romans 1, Paul says that God gives man over to the consequences of their own sins. God's main way of punishing people is not to strike them with a lightning bolt from heaven. Instead, he allows people to suffer the consequences 
of their sinful way of life. We're all familiar with the biblical principle that you reap what you sow. If we give ourselves over into a certain sin, we can also reap, we can also expect to reap the consequences of it. If we do not show respect for authority, our children may copy that attitude and rebel against us and perhaps even against God. If we nurture hatred in our hearts against our neighbor, we may find that our own life is consumed by anger and by bitterness. Those who commit adultery will discover that giving, them so, giving in to their sinful lusts carries the high price of broken relationships. Those whose focus in life is on making money will in the end discover that their treasure is empty and they cannot take it with them. You see, beloved, God often allows man to suffer the consequences of his sins. He allows us to reap what we sow, either as a warning to call us back to him or as a judgment for rejecting him. We read together this afternoon a parable that Jesus told to the Pharisees. They were sneering at Jesus because of his teaching, you cannot love both God and money. The Pharisees loved money. And Jesus told them that God knew their hearts. It's in this context that Jesus taught the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He wanted to address the sinful hearts of the leaders of God's people, calling them to repentance by warning them of the judgment to come. Most of us are familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor beggar didn't have much in the way of material goods. He was covered by sores. All he wanted was to eat some scraps from, out of the rich, from off of the rich man's table. Jesus called him Lazarus. His name meant, God is my helper. Lazarus loved the Lord and trusted in him. As the parable makes clear, he was a child of Abraham, a believing covenant child. In the end, it appears that he died of malnutrition. Yet God truly was his helper. For when he died, the angels came and carried him to heaven. His faith was justified. He was allowed to share in the joy of his master, Jesus Christ. In contrast, Jesus also tells us about the rich man. He is actually the central character of this parable. He was completely self-absorbed. Jesus describes him as being dressed in purple and fine linen and living in luxury every day. His focus was on parading his wealth, on living the good life. Though he calls Abraham Father Abraham, his heart was far from God. He did not have the faith of Abraham. It's seen in his utter disregard for God's law. God commanded his people to take care of the poor and the needy among them. Yet the rich man let Lazarus die at his front gate. He neglected the more important matters of the law, 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And because of this, he came under God's judgment. In our parable, Jesus describes the result of his sinful, self-absorbed life. After he died, he went to hell, where he's in torment. He begged for Father Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue, because he is in agony in the fire. Here we see God's just judgment on man's sin. A day of reckoning is coming for all who have ever lived on this earth. A time when we will have to give account before the throne of God for all we've ever said and done. You see, beloved, what happens in this life is but a prelude for the future. It's especially on the final day of judgment that God will punish the wicked for their sins. He will banish them to hell. The Bible uses different images to describe the future state of the unrighteous. Hell is described as outer darkness, where men weep and gnash their teeth, as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The final condition of the wicked is spoken of as eternal punishment, as the bottomless pit, torment, and the second death. The worst thing about God's final judgment on the wicked is that he will completely withdraw himself from them. If there's one basic characteristic of hell, it is this. God is absent from those there. Although many do not realize it on this earth, God still grants many good gifts to men. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In this life, God still restrains man's utter corruption. He's given people a sense of what's right and wrong, of what's honorable and shameful. God works in people so that they still show some regard for virtue and for outward order. But in hell, all of that will be gone. People will be left to deal with the utter corruption of their hearts, to suffer the full consequences of their sinfulness. And that's not even the worst thing about hell. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says that those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Part of the suffering will be a sense of loneliness, of having seen the glory of God, knowing that he is Lord of all, only to be cut off from him. Part of the suffering will be the realization that this separation is permanent. To have God turn his face deliberately away from you forever. That's hell. It's a punishment God will bring on those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who do not love and serve him. In our first point, we've seen God's justice in punishing the sins of some with their own death. In our second point, we'll see God's mercy in forgiving the sins of others through Christ's death. 
question that faces us, beloved, is whether or not God will punish us for our sins. So far in our sermon, we've spoken about how God punishes man for his sins. Are we included in that? We're part of humanity, aren't we? So does this mean that God also punishes us for our sins? As part of humanity, we have fallen under God's curse. Also, we as followers of Christ have to deal with the consequences of the fall into sin. Many of the struggles and the hardships of life do not pass us by. As Christians, we too suffer the effects of droughts and floods. We too get sick. We suffer pain. We die. It's not just unbelievers who suffer the consequences of their sins. The Bible teaches that also believers reap what they sow. Just think of the results of David's sins of adultery and murder. God allowed his son to die. He said that the sword would never depart from David's house. David had his own son rebel against him, seeking his life so he could become king. And having said all this, we still need to make an important distinction between how God deals with the unrighteous and how he deals with us. While God punishes the sins of the wicked, he does not punish us for our sins. Let me repeat that. God does not punish us for our sins. How can that be, you ask? Doesn't that contradict what we just learned about God's justice? Is it possible for God to just overlook the sins of his people? How can God make a distinction, punishing the sins of the wicked, but forgiving the sins of his chosen ones? Beloved, please take note of what our catechism teaches in answer 10. It says that God is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. Our catechism doesn't say that God will punish us. It says God will punish our sins. God certainly maintains his justice. Sins require payment. Satisfaction needs to be made. And the point is, is that God does not require this payment, this satisfaction from us. Answer 11 gives some further instruction about this. In this question, man seeks to escape punishment through an appeal to God's mercy. But our catechism makes it clear we cannot play off one of God's attributes against another. Our catechism says that God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. It explains that God's justice requires that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved, we cannot bear God's punishment against our sin. And God knows that. It's why he has provided a way for us to escape the wrath we deserve. 
It had to be a way that satisfied his justice. That way is through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's on him that God poured out his wrath. He is the one who bore the punishment that we deserve. Christ came into this world to give up his life for us. He died a terrible death, suffering great agony because of our sins. Jesus was crucified. He bore the curse of God for our sake. The Belgian Confession describes in a beautiful way how the justice and the mercy of God are not opposed to each other. Article 20 teaches us that God's justice and mercy come together at the cross in the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's there that God manifested his justice against his Son when he laid our iniquity upon him. It's there that God poured out his goodness and his mercy on us, giving his Son to die for us, that we might obtain immortality and life. How rich we are to share in the glad tidings of salvation. When we struggle with sin and all its consequences, we're comforted by the gospel of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, is life worth living? How are we to cope with the pressures and the disappointments and the difficulties of life? Is suicide a solution for Christians? When life gets tough, should we be asking for medical assistance in dying? Well, the answer is very simple. No. Taking your own life speaks of despair, of hopelessness. And while it's true that we may at times suffer under such feelings, they're not in line with what we know and with what we confess. God has revealed Jesus Christ to us as the answer to our problems. He's given Christ to us to redeem us from our sin and misery. He came to save us from our sins to provide healing and renewal in our lives. It's in Christ that we find our comfort and hope. Think back to the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor man, a beggar. He was a sick man, full of sores. In his life on earth, he received many bad things a life of struggle and sorrow. And yet Lazarus was taken up to Abraham's side. God truly was his helper. He was allowed to share in the joy of his master. He inherited eternal life. The rich man did not. He was in torment in hell. He pleaded for some relief, for Lazarus to come with a drop of water in his finger to cool his tongue. But it was too late. There's a chasm between heaven and hell 
that cannot be breached. The rich man begged Lazarus that Lazarus be sent to speak to his five brothers, that they would not also end up in that place of torment. Yet in the parable, Abraham responds that the rich man's brothers have Moses and the prophets. The rich man's brothers were part of the covenant community. They had the word of God. The rich man says that if Lazarus returned from the dead, his brothers would repent. But Abraham responded that if they're not willing to listen to the word of God, neither will they be convinced, even if Lazarus rises from the dead. Beloved, we have received the gospel of salvation through grace alone in Jesus Christ. Believe in him and live. Love and serve him, and you'll receive his blessings, both in this life and the life to come. Is life really worth living? Yes, beloved, it is. Because God does not deal with us as we deserve. God does not punish us for our sins. God has not forsaken us. In his grace, God has given us new life in Jesus Christ. It's by living with him that we find peace and joy in our lives. It's by praising and glorifying his name that our life, again, has purpose. God helps us through the temptations and struggles that we face in our lives. Nothing can separate us from his love in Jesus Christ. Life through Christ and for him is altogether worth living. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by singing together from hymn 70. <clears throat>